0: To The Key to Carowind, a work of original fiction by Wendy Fair. Key to Carowind is narrated by Mason Fair. The Key to Carowind, Chapter 15, The Girl and the Fairy and the Door. A night and then a second, dragging by with shuffles and stalls, the girl remains at home. I made it so, kept her contained and out of trouble. A note from the school nurse, another missed day of school. Fever and coughing, and the girl was out of my way and no longer in danger of finding the door. Or so I thought. Then the third night, with all of time's chances and changes, gives me my opportunity. Another call from the hospital Another dash out the door with barely a goodbye to the girl and the boy. Another long evening filled with waiting and worrying and wondering. Searching the windows for headlights and pacing the floor when they fail to appear. All the while coughing and pulling a heavy blanket around her to stave off the chill that was quick to descend. A rattle of the Box on the wall and the boy scoops up the handle before he has stopped moving. He sobers and nods even though it can't be seen through the telephone. Okay, he finally says, yeah, bye. The girl stands staring up at him. They said they wouldn't be coming home tonight. The baby is getting worse. The boy says to the floor at his feet. He turns, bumping past the girl and moves up the stairs. A second later his door closes with a wooden thunk. She appears then, stretched looking, unusual for her. It troubles me for some reason, none of this ought to be happening after all. He should not have allowed any of this. The girl peers up at her. Is the baby dying? "'The girl asks in a molasses-thick voice clogged with tears. "'We will see what happens,' comes her reply. "'This is my time, my moment to bring everything to a close, or a start, as it were. "'I am at the hospital. "'The room with the too-large bed and a much-too-small infant is crowded with people.' doctors, nurses, the woman, the man, people helping the infant breathe, people watching the thin green line on the beeping machine beside the bed, people injecting more pernicious elixirs, people simply standing, unsure of what they ought to do. Now, how best to proceed? I stand pondering, not knowing I am watching my chance pass me by. It is the shadows, of course, always the interfering shadows. I do not see them, not until it is too late. By then I can only stand and watch them slip toward the woman pulling and leaning in and touching. One stretches an unsubstantial hand to the machine beside the too-large bed. Another whispers into the doctor's ear, and one deep shade moves towards the infant. No, stop! I do not want for this to happen. He would never forgive this. He would never let me return. But I cannot move, held fast by a straitjacket of shade and darkness. I struggle until I hear the ragged breathing of the infant, hear the stutter of his heart, see the rhythm of the machine's falter and stop with a deafening silence. I stop my writhing and stare. Then all is silent and a cold stillness descends on the room. It is broken only by the sound of the woman's despair. Then, out of air that seems to hold too little breath in it, I hear faint words. I listen, still watching the shadows nudge the woman, not knowing what they whisper in her ear. All I can hear is the voice of the girl now. "'We have to go open the door,' she determines." It's the only way to save him. With a whisk and a whisper, I'm in the girl's room, watching as she speaks to the girl. As I've said, it won't work. This isn't the way. Insistent, almost commanding. As though she commands anything here. We have to try, the girl replies. Stuffing a flashlight into a satchel... Along with the map and the key, she has just dropped in. You aren't well, she replies, not moving. It is dangerous for you. You should not do this. Why, the girl asks. A pull of a jacket, a tug at a shoelace. Why is it dangerous? You shouldn't be near the door, comes her reply. Because I'm sick again. Yes, and no. I'm going, the girl says. I can't just let him die. Not for you and not for us. The girl tugs her satchel over her shoulder, marches out of her room and sinks into the shadows in the hallway, slipping just beneath them. She emerges onto the main floor and continues out the door. She heads for the park, taking a direct route to the train tunnel. High overhead, a red moon casts its orange glow onto the park, surrounding the girl like a stage light. The girl walks for longer than she ought. What might have been shadows raise up tall and thick before her, slowing her steps and speeding her clutching breaths. She squints into the shadow and moves forward. Small bushes appear in the nothingness, and past them looms thick-trunked trees, all branches and pointed leaves, pillars that seem to pin down the earth and hold up the sky. The girl stops and considers them for a moment. She cocks her head to one side and leans forward. The orange-red light of the moon seeps through from inside the giant circle of trees and spills onto the girl. It brings with it wind chime notes that fall to the ground and scatter like leaves on the breeze, pattering about the girl's feet before they reach her ears. Sparks of light float up around her. Fireflies on an errant breeze, they drift into the midst of the trees, feeding the moon's light and stoking the firebright glow that burns inside the forest circle. The girl just catches a flash and a jingle. Chandelier? She asks into the darkness. She floats along with the lights and the glow following the flicker of white into the trees to its ever-brightening circle. Suddenly the trees give way and the girl finds herself by the old carousel. Not the dead thing the girl has previously passed in the dark, this one is alive with multicolored lights and music. These horses trot in time to its rhythm and flow, prancing and skipping, their harness bells lifting up the music. And there, amidst the color and the lights and music, is Chandelier. The girl issues a small gasp and moves further into the clearing, stirring the wet grass with her steps. More sparks take flight, but these are no longer simple fireflies. The girl can see here in the light, see the faces and wings of the creatures flying about her, carrying tiny lanterns. These are her fairies, dancing and twirling on the breeze about her. They are singing, barely audible, but the girl cannot hear their words. The girl stands, staring about her, mouth gaping. Out of the midst of the light and the music and the floating stars, steps the Fairy Queen, the tall, commanding woman in red that once was the girl's own plaything. She is that no longer. Corn silk curls, flowing cardinal gown of chiffon, glittering jewels dripping down her head. A broad smile and white teeth set in sticky red lips as she approaches the girl. Abby, welcome, the queen says. We have been waiting for you. She holds in her arms a bundle wrapped in crimson silk, just as if she were holding an infant. Waiting, the girl asks, her eyes darting from the bundle to the queen. Of course. The banquet cannot begin without the guest of honor. The queen offers her hand to the girl. The girl hesitates, then takes the proffered hand. She is pulled across the finely lit grass that still sparkles with dew. She drifts behind the queen toward a table. The table is set with silvers and gold. Gold's Flames dance over it, illuminating the feast spread across it and overflowing. Breads and fruits, candy, mashed potatoes, stuffing, and meat. Seemingly cooked so scantily that it still appears bloody. Pastries and breads and puddings and dainties and salads and squares are heaped along its length. Food in too bright to be real colors. Drinks of every scent imaginable in many decanters align the table. Lights drape the edges of the table, their brightness rising up to illuminate the many occupants sitting there. There are animals and women, fawns and birds and fairies. The girl looks upon them and understands instinctively then, these fairies have as little human in them as do serpents. And in the center of the table remain two empty chairs. The queen leads the girl to one of them and pulls it out, waiting with a silent, sherry smile until the girl obediently sits. The queen floats down onto the chair next to her, "'setting the bundle of crimson silk on the table in front of the girl. "'Come,' the queen says, piling food high onto the plate before the girl. "'Eat and celebrate your joining us.' "'She fills two golden goblets and thrusts one at the girl. "'A toast. "'Joining you?' the girl asks, taking the goblet and sniffing at it. "'She makes a face and sets it on the table.' The girl ducks as a pesky fairy dives at her head, then abruptly changes course and sets down on the edge of the girl's goblet. The fairy bobs her face into the drink and then totters back onto the edge of the cup. A flash of awareness on a diminutive face, a last small breath, and a darkened fall to the table. And the fairy is no more. Its light is out. The queen scowls down at the fallen fairy and picks it up by its wings, holding it aloft to study it a moment. The fairy droops like wet pasta. Silly things, the queen remarks with a sneer. They cannot hold their drink. She tosses the fairy over her shoulder and turns to smile down at the girl. Of course you'll stay, she says, her face brighter now. You can remain with us forever. No worries, no sickness, no troubles. All of your friends are here. Everyone is adoring you and loving you. You will never be alone again. That is the world of the fairies you created, is it not? All your wishes are coming true. And my family, what happens to them if I stay? Why, you can keep them with you. The queen sets down her goblet and reaches for the bundle on the table. She thrusts it at the girl. Just like this one, they can stay with you forever. They will do whatever you want them to. The girl takes a bundle of crimson cloth and carefully pulls back one silken corner. Looking up at her with eyes of wooden circles and a face wrought of coarse, worn, cotton, lips stitched in faded pink thread, graying at the edges. A doll. It has a child's sleeping face and a sparse covering of yarn hair. It has the coloring of her own infant brother. There'll be dolls? A crowing laugh. Of course, they are your playthings here. The girl pulls the cloth back over the doll's face and lays the bundle on the table. It settles less like a toy and more like a dead thing. One of its arms falling loose of the cloth to lie limp on the polished wood, its hand a gripless fist. I can't do that, the girl says, turning from the doll and rising from her chair. I have something I need to do. The queen sobers. But you mustn't leave. Here. The woman ducks her head, reaching down beside her chair. The girl quickly and silently switches the two goblets set before herself and the queen. The queen straightens and pulls a matted mass of yellow and black fuzz from under the table. You can even have your duck back, she offers, dropping the stuffed duckling onto the table in front of the girl. It is an unspeakable reiteration of the creature, Permanently infantile, matted fluff, warped neck, bill askew. An imitation of life that succeeds in only imitating death. The girl shakes her head, averting her eyes from the yellow and brown thing before her. I can't stay. The queen stands then, looming tall over the girl. Her dress is now beginning to fade and crack, rust orange seeping through the cardinal. Her lips lose their shine, drying, cracking, blood seeping between the lines until it colors her teeth, filling in the gaps. Her corn silk hair sags and is now gray and wild, careening about her head in a flurry of ash, bits of it floating away into the blood red sky. She reaches for the two goblets, thrusting the one in front of the girl at her. "'You will stay,' the queen orders. "'Drink!' The girl takes the goblet with hesitant hands, lifts slowly to meet the queen's cup, and touches the brim with her own. The girl raises the goblet to her lips and watches as the queen does the same. They drink and set down their cups. The queen smiles watches, and waits. So does the girl. The queen's smile slowly fades. The blood drains from her skin. Her face turns flat and white. Her hair thins along the scalp. Somehow, she suddenly seems not quite so tall. She looks around storm clouds for eyes as she shrinks. No, she wails. What have you done? The girl says nothing. She remembers the duckling she left behind. She calls to the man in the hospital, whose neck she snapped like bare twigs. She thinks of the baby doll, lying dead and discarded on the table. She considers the dried apple shrinking queen as it falls silent and still. She wonders, what is this thing that I have become? She stoops then, picking up the queen. The queen is now the size of the girl's doll back home. The thing that is the queen stiffens, her arms becoming cloth draped in satins, her hair once again yarn-threaded to her scalp. There is a buzz and a swirling. It rises up around the girl. She looks up and sees the fairies then. Sees their pointed teeth and frizzed hair sees their snarls and sharp claws, hears their hissing as they dive at her head. They dart at the girl's eyes and swarm about her ears. The girl ducks and turns, swatting at them with the doll that was once the fairy queen. The girl runs, throwing the doll at the swarming fairies, headlong and pell-mell. A mad dash and a weave finally leaving the fairy circle in the forest behind. The girl reaches the tunnel under the train. A rattling breathing and the fit of coughing is the result of her flight. There is no train. Not yet, at any rate. At the moment, there is nothing. Simply the door and the girl. Let me describe it to you. Absorbing. Clinging cloying, saturating velvet darkness, black that smells of an open field at night, with the hint of a promise, the flavor of smoke and a spring wind. Light shines behind, but only just into the mouth of the tunnel, making the dark more deep, more pervasive, and more welcoming by contrast. A girl stands solidly, feet planted in pools of shadow just beyond the reach of the light. She seems smaller here, at the point where two worlds meet, facing off against all of time and light and darkness. These things are so very much larger than she. The door's edges appear and shimmer deep inside the recesses of the tunnel, Growing brighter, the light, almost, but not quite caressing the girl's face. I can see the door in her wet eyes as she studies it hungrily. If you were there, and had looked upon the girl, you would have thought up words like determined, or strong, or brave, or perhaps even heroic. And yet, if you were there, you would have known that this situation was not any of those worn-out, trite things. It was not any of those ineffectual or cliché terms that mean little and have even less strength. No, this situation had bite to it. It had all the force of tragic and all the vigor of gut-wrenching a very small person against a very large thing. No matter what storybooks say, no matter how many happy endings you would like to believe in, no matter how many 11th hour rescues you've heard about, you would have known that this would not be any of those things. You would see her a shade against the darkness and you would think, this is not a rescue. This will be a massacre. The girl should not have come. Why would she allow this? Why would he? I take a deep breath and watch the girl as she pulls the flashlight and key from her satchel. The bag drops to the ground with the deadened thud of a fallen bird. But the girl continues heedless of the thing, unthinking that there ought to have been an echo. Please, do not make me do this. Stop, she calls then. I am very nearly grateful to her at the moment. You must not try to open the door. The girl stays her course and turns to her. Thank you, thank you. But my gratitude is short-lived. I have to save him, she says. If we can get him home, he will be safe. The king can help him, and he will be all right again. That isn't how it works, she calls. You don't understand. You must not bring him home. Their voices grow louder, straining to be heard as their sounds are swallowed by the rumbling and quaking that has begun overhead. The noise builds and grows until it is everything and nothing, and the girl turns again to the door, abandoning argument. Slowly, reluctantly, I pull a long blade from the pocket of my cloak. This is the last thing I want to do. It is everything I trusted he would prevent. I feel heavy and mired in reluctance. Why hadn't he simply done as I asked? Why didn't he stop this? But he does not. And now it comes to this, and my fate, if not already sealed, certainly will be after this. Why wouldn't he simply listen? Why couldn't he understand? I step between the girl and the door and for the first time she steps away from me, back toward her. She is waiting and reaches to pull the girl behind her, staring up at me with those eyes. If it had simply been fear I saw there, it would have been easier to do the thing that had been cast as my lot. But there is so much more in her eyes regret sorrow pity pity is the worst of it i hate that hate seeing it there simply because it is deserved the girl leans and looks around her studying me with wide eyes her hands go limp and the flashlight clatters to the ground along with the key but there is no sound to their fall. It is consumed by the thunder roaring overhead, and it is hidden in the dirt and dust that rain down on our heads with the shaking of the ground beneath our feet. She plants her feet and draws a sword from her robe. No, not this, too. Please, please do not put this upon me, too. And yet... I know this has been made mine. This task has been given to me to carry out. My strength falters for a moment in the face of the thing that I must do. The blade feels heavy in my hand and my feet are cemented in ambivalence. It must be done, and yet I cannot. My hand is forced. She moves forward with a sudden lunge and a thrust, and I move to block her sword with my blade. It seems to be wrapped in thick chains, and I let the tip of it come to rest on the ground. But she does not stop. She turns and comes at me again. Her with all her light and her pity. The shadows rush over us then. For the first time, I can hear their whispers. They speak of injustices heaped upon me, the inescapable and unwanted destiny that has been thrust upon me, and even now, in all of this, the exploitation of my power to aid their cause. Yes, she has every reason to pity me. Anger stirs in my chest and the shadows grip me, move me, mantle me in an armor of darkness that moves of its own accord. I watch myself move, I bring my sword around, here I am powerful, aided by the shadows, commanding them, using their strength. She hesitates, unknowing filling her eyes it is her undoing. I strike with blinding speed. She turns to block my blade, but she is too slow, weighed down by the shades that cling to her and hold her fast. My sword finds its mark. In a brief second before she falls, she lifts her eyes to mine. I stagger back, drawing my sword from her body. This is not What I was expecting to find here at the end of the thing. For in her eyes I do not see fear or regret or contrition. In her eyes is satisfaction and peace. As if of her own choice she lets her weapon fall to the ground. Silent in the din raging overhead. As though coming to the end of a long wearying journey. She seems to simply lie down and rest her eyes close what have they done to me what have they cost me I turn then not to the girl for she cannot help me now no I turn to find the key I must hide it away I must keep the door from ever opening again I can never go back and most surely I cannot have him ever come here I must keep the world separate at all costs. He must never know. The girl stands before me all anger and shadow now. I see them grinning from where they cling to her, but cannot hear what they whisper in her ear. What is said, however, makes her face hard and her eyes cut into mine like steel knives. She looks at her where she lies silent and still and then glances at the ground near her feet. We both turn our eyes to the key, then raise them to one another. You are too late, I say. He is gone, let me take the key. Then you and I will walk this world together, moving and going as we please. We will hold sway over All the earth, bending the dark and the light to our will as we choose. No, it's not too late. The king can still save him. I know he can. Said as if the sheer willing of her small soul will make it so. Even as she stands on shaking legs. I like her for that. No, he will not. He did not. He only wants you to serve him again as you once did. He will give me back the baby and make my mother happy again. She will love me again because I have helped her. Foolish child, you know not of what you speak. You do not even know who he is. He will not interfere in this world. If he wanted to intervene, he would have come for you by now, but he has not. He chose not to. What are you talking about? Panic now, looming up like a serpent's ugly head. A gasping breath and a throat-splitting cough. The girl looks to her again, but she remains still. I asked him to come and bring you back himself. You, his beloved servant. Instead, he abandoned you to this world and to me. He does not care for you. He will not help you. You're telling me I'm the servant girl? I'm Abigail? The words are whispered as if they will shatter if said too forcefully. Yes, she never told you that, did she? They didn't want you to know. They didn't want for you to come back, she did everything to prevent you from returning to Kerwin. A hesitation, an uncertain glancing between me and her, a solitary tear and a swipe at it. A deep-throated rattle of phlegm, then cold understanding straightens the girl's face and she raises her midnight deep eyes to mine. You're wrong. I know how to open the door now. She wasn't keeping me out. She was keeping me alive. The girl moves before I can. Way down as I am in darkness and unheard echoes. She lunges for the key and has it in hand before I take a single step. But I am moving then and I force my steps to quicken. I almost have her, my sword in my hand, ready to do what I must. Ready to do this thing they have laid at my feet. The girl darts to the side then, small and quick like a bat. She flits over to her. The girl picks up her fallen sword and turns to me, holding it high. Yet I can see the trembling of it in her small hands. Still, the girl stands solidly. I like her for that too, but she has the key in her hand, and I see her eyes dart to the door behind me. That must not happen. I move forward, and the girl dodges. She begins to move past me, but the darkness is helping me now, and my body quickens. I thrust my blade, and it finds its mark for a second time. I watch as the girl's small frame crumples. I see the key slide from her hand and watch impotently as it slips along past from one shade's hand to the next and then another. It glides effortlessly into a wall of darkness that is shadow and shade. Gone where no one knows where and never to be seen again in the light of this world. And with the passing of the key, I just barely glimpse an unfolding of the girl's shadow and a bleeding flash of silver slipping along with the key. A release from the heavy heat of her body. A freedom from her fight for breath. The girl rests. I feel myself go cold and see the shadows slip from me. I stand alone, staring at the door waiting You have been listening to Key to Carwin A work of original fiction by Wendy Fair. Key to was narrated by Mason Fair, with original music provided by Serena Fair. For more information about this and other projects, please visit shifterspress.ca. Thank you for listening.